Hey folks, it's Damon and this is Theory Tales of the Techie and I'm super excited you're here and it is Saturday morning, November 18th. It's about 5, 5.15 a.m. And um, folks, this is going to be uh, really cool. This this podcast, I, I um, had a really cool conversation with an 18-year-old uh, that's going to go to college next year, next fall. And he's found my podcast. I should have asked him how, I don't know how, but we talked uh, for quite a long time. And he said, what other classes should he take in college besides theater to help enrich his future in theater and in, in tech theater? And so, and folks, first of all, I want to do a disclaimer. What I'm discussing in this podcast is my own opinion and it has no reflection of any manufacturer I know or I've ever worked with or anything. This is just raw me vomiting out some ideas, okay? <clears throat> but I told him basically back in um, so when I when I think about career paths in this industry and somebody who's saying, how do I find oh, and I need to back up for a minute. Another thing is this kid is really really funny because he said that his family's very successful and he's the only one going into the theater. Everybody else is like CPAs and lawyers and doctors and I don't know, all of these different things. And he really said he wants to find a secure way to go into the theater and never look back, never have any doubts. And I said, you're always going to have doubts, you know, and normally it's never the theater. It's dickhead people. It's people that are emotional. They're the it, it, people ruin everything. Okay, but luckily in the theater industry, we all come from that same island of misfits. So normally it's not a theater person that's going to do that. It's going to be somebody from outside the theater industry. Um, but what I want to talk about today, folks, is the discussion we had, me and this, this young man. Um, so and I know I'm stumbling around because I'm trying to figure out actually how to talk about um, the conversation we had without um just making this last for hours. So I, I guess I need to dive in, right? So let's back up to 1995. I'm working at SGTV and AV services. I've got an incredible rental shop. I have a bunch of color tran uh, lighting consoles, a whole bunch of Altman lighting fixtures, and I have two EDI scrimmer packs and um, some Dove system, little dimmers and just different stuff. But one of my... Uh, EDI dimming racks actually fell out of the back of a box truck once bounced down a grass embankment into a ditch full of this, like, you know, where like cattails and weeds grow about six inches of water. <clears throat> we drug it out of the uh, ditch, took it to a car wash, used high pressure water, sprayed out all the dimmers and everything. Oh, another cool thing about the scrimmer package, you could either put 2.4 K dimmers in it or six K dimmers. So if you're doing like film and television, you needed like the big five K's, you could put a 6K dimmer in there and it would carry the load fine. So we, we pull the dimming racks out. We blast this thing full of high pressure water, get all the mud out of it, take high pressure air, blow it all out, hook it to a gin set, fire it up and it worked perfect. So think about that, folks. We dropped a dimming rack out of the back of a panel truck going down a gravel road, made it turn too tight. The back door is open. I, mean, I don't want to go into whose fault it was because it really stressed me out. Um, but it worked. That's how bulletproof this dimming rack was. 
back in the day, the CD80, uh, strand CD80 racks were the most bulletproof. So where I'm getting at, folks, is there's going to be times in our lives where we work around equipment and we realize that they were just overbuilt, but they weren't overbuilt at an expense of raising the price of the product. The chokes in these dimmers were huge. The connectors were huge. The uh, sheet metal was thick. Okay, these. this is before everybody was trying to save every little dime. People, whoops, I just dropped my little notepad. People were willing to pay for quality as they, they still are today. <clears throat> Excuse me. But here's the crazy thing, folks, is if you take an ellipsoidal light from the 1990s and you drop it, the only things that are going to break in it is maybe the lenses. You might dent it. If it has a glass reflector, you could crack or break it. But for the most part, ellipsoidals dropped from four or five feet are just going to get dented or scratched. Fresnels, eh, you might break the Fresnel lens on the front, but these parts and pieces cost 50 or 60 bucks each. It was relatively easy just to take a screwdriver, <clears throat> excuse me, and a pair of pliers and service any of these products I'm talking about. Now you're wondering, okay, where are you getting at that this kid needs to take some other classes in college? Well, I'll get there in a minute. So I asked him if he had heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I know if you're my longtime listeners, you're probably like, oh my God, Damon's going to talk about the five years and 10,000 hours and being a guru. I am. That's exactly what I'm going to talk about. Because I have a friend that has been servicing dimming equipment for over 35 years. And when you Apply that to hours, it's 70,000 hours he's been working on dimming systems. Okay, dimming and controls. But the dimming and controls of the 1990s is totally different than what we've got today. So back in the 90s, you had a dimming rack that cost about $36,000. You had lighting fixtures that cost $250. You had some distribution, and that, that was your dimming system. Today, the dimmers aren't back in a room. They're in the lighting fixture, and they're called drivers. Some of these fixtures have six and seven of these drivers in there because they have six or seven different LEDs. So I told this young man that he needs to take some electronic classes. He needs to take some code writing classes because if he ever wants any controls, um, it's awesome to under. <clears throat> excuse me. <coughs> Pardon me, folks. It's very important to understand some basic code writing nowadays. Um, he should learn controls. You know, he should learn, um, you know, I told him that he, if he becomes really tech savvy and understanding this stuff on an electronic level, if he knows how to read an oscilloscope, you know, if he knows what DMX looks like, uh, DMX 512 looks like on an oscilloscope, it's going to be really, really important for him. But, but the reason I told him this is folks, I want you to imagine something for a minute. When I bought an ellipsoidal back in the nineties, I was paying between $175 and $250 for the lighting fixture. Okay. Nowadays, the ETC like color source, I think, is about $2,000 right now. So we went from $250 being high to a $2,000. Now, look, I know there's some other companies out there, Chave, and some other people that have lighting fixtures that um, are really kick ass and a little bit less price money. Even if it's $1,500, you're not. I mean, when you all of a sudden, when you're buying 36, uh, you know, uh, profile fixtures for your front of house position, you're paying $72,000. 
Okay, you're not paying like, you know, $10,000. And these things, the old dimming systems, okay, the uh, old dimming systems lasted 20, 25 years. These lighting fixtures nowadays, we don't know yet how long the drivers in those fixtures are going to last. And keep in mind, back in the 90s, uh, you know, if a dimmer went bad, you, you just replaced the dimmer. On these fixtures, if a driver goes bad, you're replacing a, a pretty big piece of electronics inside this lighting fixture. And then you got to think about your downtime, taking that fixture down, shipping it back to the factory, having somebody service it and all of that. Um, most of the time on a dimming rack, we had extra dimmers laying around. You could just take an extra dimmer and slam it into the rack where maybe the bad dimmer was. A friend texted me about, I don't know, a week ago that he was at a symphony or something somewhere in the country. And one of the lights up on the truss started just strobing. And it strobe for the rest of the entire performance because they couldn't turn it off. And the reason they couldn't turn it off is, number one, they didn't really know what circuit that fixture was. And they shut the DMX off. They shut everything off. But if they, they'd they have to kill the power to the whole truss, and they would lose a lot of lights that way. So one of these lights had some kind of brain hemorrhage, went into strobe mode, and become a complete pain in the ass. And folks, back in the day, we would just go up to a dimmer rack and flip a breaker off if we had something going crazy. But all the local control was back in a room. It wasn't up on a truss. So I told this young man, I said, you know, if you can take electronic classes, <clears throat> if you can take a controls class, if you can take a class on writing code, that's what our industry is going to need in the future. We're going to need service techs like you wouldn't believe to service all of this stuff that we're building, which in my humble opinion is insane. <clears throat> and I, I've got critics. I've had people call me up when they've heard me talk about, you know, LEDs. And they're like, well, Damon, you know, at this casino, those lighting fixtures have been up there 15 years and they're working just fine. Great. I'm full of crap. I'm wrong. But I also know a whole bunch of people that have sent me pictures of LED fixtures thrown in dumpsters because the things just didn't work right. They bought the $1,200 light that was a piece of garbage and then it lasted five years and they had to go out and then rebuy the $2,000 fixture that they're hoping will last 10 or 15 years. But also imagine this. Let's say just because of technology, you know, how many of us own a car until it has 300,000 miles on it? Not many. Why do, why do we do that? We get bored with the car or the car starts to look a bit rough and we think, oh, we don't want to drive a rough looking car. But that engine, if you change the oil and you maintain it, you see a mechanic, you know, every 90 days, that engine should last 300,000 miles about <clears throat> easy 200,000. But that's not the way we are as, as human machines. We always want to buy something a little, you know, I've got a 2013 Suburban. I don't even have 90,000 miles on it because folks, I use my Suburban basically to drive the airport and back for work. Okay. Or if I'm pulling a trailer full of airplanes, you know, for my hobby, <clears throat> but, um, in theory, I, I'm, I'm going to keep that until it's got 200,000 miles. It's been paid off for many years now, you know, um, it's a 10 year old car, which might be old, but 
it doesn't even have 90,000 miles on it yet. And it and it's inside is immaculate. But guess what drives me nuts? And it just dry it just drives me nuts. I don't have a backup camera. It drives me nuts. So I go to Amazon. I buy this little magnetic camera that goes on the back. I plug it into my dashboard. And guess what? I got a backup camera. So I should be good to go, right? Well, then I rent a car and it's got Apple CarPlay. I'm like, holy crap, this is cool. Nope, not going to have that in my car. <laughs> I still have a CD player in my car. So, folks, the things is, thing is, is... <clears throat> These new lighting fixtures we're buying are so technically uh, driven with software, firmware, all these things, that even if the fixture lasts, let's say, 8, 10 years, it could be possible that a touring show comes in and they want to plug into the system and those fixtures are obsolete com compared to the controls that they're wanting it for the way they're wanting them to behave. Now, I'm not saying this is going to actually happen, but the advancements we're having in technology right now, that if you're an 18-year-old, you're going to go to college, you know you're going to major in theater, you want a theater degree. <clears throat> On this side, I would take electronic classes and make sure that you understand uh, uh, the entire electrical side of our industry because those kind of people are going to be needed. Now, another thing I want to do, folks, and maybe I already told you this, <clears throat> but when I was discussing to him the Dunning-Kruger effect, and I mentioned that one of my friends is one of the best technicians I know for repairing dimming systems, and he's done it for 35 years, you know, which is 70,000 hours he's been doing it. I said to him that he's 18. Okay, he's just at the start of this whole cycle. So let's say that he did this for uh, 20 years, 20 years as, um, you know, a theater guru, technician, whatever you want to call it. At 20 years, you've got 40,000 hours in this industry. At 20 years, you have probably created so many different silos of knowledge. You know, you learn how to build sets. You learn how to do lighting design. You learn how to do audio. You learn how <clears throat> possibly to weld if you're doing sets you learn all these other silos of knowledge that one day you'll be in the position where you're going to say, okay, do I want to work for a rep network? Do I want to work for a manufacturer as a service tech? You know, you're going to, you're going to be, you're going to be looking at all these different options you're going to have. And that's the beauty of this industry is all the options. You're also going to be, and folks, I did a podcast, you know, a couple of weeks ago called The Problem Solver, and that has resonated so much with some of my friends that's been around forever that, you know, they said, <clears throat> Damon, that was your best podcast. And folks, I thought I had some other podcasts that were a lot better than a problem solving one. But my friends in the industry, they said that resonated so much with how they've been so successful. So... Folks, success is, is one of the easiest things in the world to have as long as you're not a complete sniveling, complaining. You, you know, I don't even know how to explain it, folks. If you're going to, if you're going to spend your whole life in this industry and let's say you become a tech guru and let's say you really understand the electronics, you're going to meet people that all they want to do is complain and say, poor me, this is old, it's obsolete, it doesn't work. 
but they're never going to offer the solution. That's where you're going to come in. So you're going to meet somebody and they're going to be like, oh yeah, this ellipsoidal is garbage. You know, drivers are bad and all this is stuff. If you've been a technician for 20 years in this industry, chances are in your garage or in your storage or someplace that your wife's not going to like, you've got a whole bunch of old parts that you've pulled out of other things you've been repairing. And you will most likely start having kind of a library of all these parts. And you can say to them, well, I've got an old obsolete part I can put in there and keep it running for another five years if that's okay. And they'll be like, well, absolutely. Well, guess what? That part you got, you probably got for free. Because if you become the proper technician in this industry for repairing things, every time you see a demo, you don't throw all that stuff in a dumpster. <laughs> you piss off your wife. You bring it all home and put it in the garage. And then you take it all apart for parts. And you start putting those parts in those big Tupperware air seal bins. And then when you're out servicing an old system and nobody has the parts, guess what? You are. My friend who's been doing it for 35 years in his basement has all the old strand parts, the color trend parts, the decor parts, um, century parts. He's got parts to everything that he has collected for 35 years. And he makes a boatload of money keeping old systems running. Okay. So, and, and this is going to become a bigger problem because when you start slamming all these LEDs with drivers and power supplies and all this crap into a single fixture and expect that fixture to last 20 years hanging on a trust. I don't see how that's possible. I don't see how um, they could build a driver as robustly as they could the chokes that were in the dimmers that we used in the 1990s. Now, I could be totally wrong here, but there's also a reason. One of my friends gave me a number that surprised me. There is a lighting company in the country that I think has 315 service centers or it's 315 people that do service. And to me, that sounds like a big number. But it's not because they're building equipment that is bad. It's because they're building equipment that's been around 35 or 40 years now. So they got all these old dimming systems out there that are past their expiration date. And guess what? They got all this new LED stuff. Basically, it's plug and play. And it, it's, it's, it's almost like going into the next chapter. So if you imagine the 1980s as a chapter of lighting uh, or theater, let's say tech theater, and then the 1990s. So the 1980s is where DMX really started to do a lot of controls. The 1990s is where we really started getting lighting fixtures that were really um, giving flat fields, really good high output and all that. The 2000s is when LED, LEDs started popping up, but they weren't really in theater fixtures first. They were all in the architectural stuff. You know, like... Um, Oh, what was the name of that first one that did all the strip lights? I can't remember the, oh, sheesh. It doesn't matter. But if you think about where we're at right now, we have a single ellipsoidal that costs 2000 freaking dollars. $2,000. We're in the 90s and 2000s and early 2010s. We could buy a lighting fixture for $345. And now we're at 2000 and that other one, the only thing that could go wrong in it was the lamp. 
a light bulb burns out that was $18. Now you got a $2,000 fixture full of drivers and LEDs and all of this muck. And it's going to take people to repair all this. It's going to take people that understand, um, excuse me, not just how to pull a PCB card out of a lighting fixture, but to be smart enough to keep all those old PCB cards, go home and see if you can repair them yourself because that's going to turn into liquid gold for you. That's going to be just, I shouldn't say liquid gold. It's going to turn into gold, solid gold for you. Okay. Um, I know a lot of technicians that when they put in a new dimming system and they take out the old dimming system, they keep all the dimmers, they keep all the control cards, um, they keep all this stuff that could go into repairing another system somewhere that's still old and obsolete. Okay. So another thing I want to talk about that me and this young man talked about is um, I'm trying to think exactly how to articulate this. Um, there is always going to be the situation in this industry where how do I put this? Um, the worst thing you can have in theater, the absolute worst thing you can have in theater is a unreliable lighting system. It can create anxiety like you've never seen folks. You know, if you got a light that blinks once in a while, but it doesn't happen unless it's during performance, <clears throat> excuse me, you have a control system where, I mean, a lighting system or a lighting desk that's wonky. And you walk in and they go, yeah, eight people have tried to fix this, but nobody knows how to fix it. After 20 or 30 years in this industry, you're going to have the experience that when somebody says that to you, you're pretty much going to look at the console and know that console and go, you know, I think I know what it is. Or you're going to look at that dimming rack and go, you know, I think I know what that is. But guess what? If you're 18 listening to this, chances are no one's going to teach you how these dimming racks work. You're going to have to, because it's obsolete, no one is building a dimming rack today that they're planning on putting into a new school. I mean, I know they still make dimmers, and I know if an architect uh, or a consultant specifies the dimmers, they can still, in theory, be put in. But I would say 85% of the world's gone to motorized breaker and LED fixtures. And if you're thinking about the classes you want to take, you want to kind of uh, talk to this counselor of the college and say, look, I'm a theater nerd. I'm going to major in theater, but we have lighting fixtures. We have control desk. We have all these things that have to be serviced. What would you recommend? What classes are available? And then go talk to professors and say, look, you know, we got this LED lighting fixture and I want to know one day how to be the greatest service technician of this lighting fixture. There's all these things, folks. But, but, but think about this also. Once you hit that 10-year mark, you're at 20,000 hours. Once you hit that, you know, 15-year mark, you're at 30,000 hours. Maybe you get into developing new lighting fixtures at that time. Or you go work for a manufacturer in NPD and start developing desk. You know, I'm telling you, rigging controls, if you want to get into rigging controls, there is such a vacuum in this industry right now of people that understand the two silos of rigging controls. One is the code writers, and the other one is the people that actually knows how the VFDs work and the uh, servo drives and all the motors and all the MCC cabinets. 
there is such a vacuum right now when it comes to automated controls in this industry, um, folks, that if you had all that knowledge, you could get hired tomorrow. I kid you not. Um, and, you know, actually, it just made me think about something when I was talking about that, the two silos. When I talk about the code side and the, like, the electronic side, the code side is a part that our industry has never taken that serious, in my humble opinion. Because keep in mind, all these times we were writing code, we we're writing codes for lighting fixtures. Lighting fixtures, if the code locks up or the board locks up, it, there's no way to kill anybody. Okay. So when I used to beta test lighting consoles at the alpha stage, right before we went to the beta stage, we would actually have employees, kids bash buttons. We'd put a video camera on the lighting board, let the kids bash the buttons and see if they could lock it up. And if the kid played with it for like eight or six, eight or 10 or 16 hours and it never locked up, we thought, okay, it's good enough to be beta tested. We'd put it out into the field, but on rigging, on rigging, if that desk go all how 5,000, somebody could get killed. And folks, this industry, and I'm not accusing anybody, but I'm talking about when people think that you can design a rigging desk, just like a lighting desk, which I've seen five or six companies um, talk about doing. Um, I worked for a company almost 20 years ago that had a controller and they never wanted to control any high-speed hoist with it. They wanted to only go 20 feet per minute with them. And the reason they wanted to do that was their thinking is that that controller went nuts. You know, people's got time to get out of the way of a hoist going 20 feet per minute. But if you've got a hoist going 250 feet per minute, how are you going to get out of the way of that? So if you want to be a controls person and you want to really, really learn all of there is about controls, you need to understand that lighting controls and rigging controls are completely two different silos because one can annoy you and the other one can pound you to death. Um, because these rigging systems, folks, have 10 horsepower motors on it. A 10 horsepower motor can pull your arm right out of the socket and right off your body like a chicken wing. It really is that powerful. It, it, it could kill you so dead that you're, you're just dead, dead. Um, but as a technician, as somebody who's going to get a degree in theater, that degree in theater is always going to make you speak the correct language of theater people. So the TDs will see you, the, you know, all these people will be like, yeah, come on in. But if you have an electronics background with it, you're going to be godlike. I'm just telling you. Now, this technician friend of mine who's been in it for 35 years, he, he was never a theater person. He, he went to the military. He worked on fighter jets, all the electronics and radars and countermeasures and all of that. And when he came out of the military, um, he actually went to the sister company of a company I work for and said, you know, I want a job, you know, fixing electronics for you. And they're like, well, we do dimming and lighting. And he said, well, let me look at that. And within two years, he was one of the best technicians in the world fixing our lighting systems. So he didn't even have a theater background. Um, but after 35 years now, he he's one of us. And uh, which is actually a Pete Gabriel song. <clears throat> You're not one of us. So, um, yeah. So uh, that's it, folks. I, I didn't, this wasn't going to be a really long podcast, but I, I just want to share this conversation I had with this kid. Um, about some parallel classes he might want to take if he is, you know, to have the widest bandwidth he can in this industry. 
And learning electronics right now, folks, is one of the most important things you could probably do in this industry because the sound systems are completely whacked right now. I mean, folks, there's $100,000 sound consoles for theaters now. I mean, who in the world would ever thought we would end up with a sound console that would be worth a hundred grand. Um, I, I can't even comprehend what we're doing with technology, you know, and I don't want to go into how it's, you know, destroying all of our kids looking at our phones 24 hours a day and all that crap. But technology in the theater industry is going to create a, a um, the environment for a whole new uh, group of people. And these are going to be really sharp people on the electrical side. And um, because, you know, it's called dimming and controls. Well, the dimming is done in the lighting fixture now. So it's basically going to be your fixtures and controls because each fixture has its own dimmers in it and or that are called drivers. So um, it's going to be a crazy future, folks. And if you're 18 and you've made up your mind you're going to uh, college for a theater and you want that theater degree, rock on. But I never really thought about what other classes you could take. And after talking to this kid, um, you know, it makes sense to both of us because, you know, uh, yeah, that's it folks. So look, everybody have an awesome day. Um, thanks for listening to my podcast and, um, you know, I've got a whole bunch more notes, but I'm going to put that into another podcast because folks, one of the things that uh, me and this young man talked about was all the different things that can break in a theater. And I don't want to make, this could go an hour long. I don't want a podcast that hardly goes ever past 40 minutes. And this one's at 30 right now. Um, but it used to be that the things that broke in a theater could literally be fixed with a pair of pliers and a screwdriver. Um, and it ain't that way anymore. So everybody, thank you for listening to this podcast. I am going to try... Uh, every weekend to get a podcast up on um, my site. I know that I'm really been uh, dropping the ball, but I have some really exciting top secret things I'm working on in life right now. Uh, actually, life couldn't be any better right now unless I won the lottery. I, I kid you not. Uh, things are just really kick ass right now. So take care, everybody. Have a great day and um, be safe. Thanks for listening to my podcast and please support the arts. Okay. Take care. Bye bye.